Welcome to another episode in the special series, Travels with Torpy. This episode was filmed in Dixie National Forest in southern Utah and is about building in or out of balance with community needs and the needs of the environment. To check out the full series, please find it wherever you listen to podcasts, on YouTube, or at RethinkingWithAlexTorpy.com. Enjoy. What's especially interesting is that there seem to be a lot of sort of similar and different problems to what we have in New Jersey on the East Coast out here in the West. Sometimes a similar problem, but that plays out in a different way. In this episode, I wanted to share just a little bit about one of these things. Uh, This is coming on the heels of spending nearly a week in 115 degree record-breaking temperatures in the Southwest. And yes, that included two days of driving five to six hours each day without any air conditioning in my truck. And it's okay, I hadn't had a good schwitz in a while. Um, And now for those of you watching on YouTube or on Instagram, you can see a little bit of where I'm at here, which is the Dixie National Forest um, in Southern Utah. Pretty beautiful, um, I must say. You can see all my travel photos um, on my Instagram page um, at Alex Torpy. Now, during these recent record-breaking heat waves, I was in Southern California and Arizona with a great friend um, who lives in the area there. Now, we camped in some places in California and Arizona, uh, Coconino, the Grand Canyon, and hung out around Phoenix and briefly Sedona before coming up here to uh, Southern Utah. Now, I had read about the heat and droughts in the West before, but I had never really experienced anything like that, save for one uh, late-night plane transfer in Doha uh, many years ago. But stepping out of a bar after midnight and it being 100 degrees out still, I mean, the heat just hits you like a wave. The heat, the droughts, the wildfires, they're all more extreme than they would be naturally without human activity. They're causing significant damage to the natural environment, causing serious injury and health problems, both acutely and chronically. These conditions have caused fatalities, and they've caused considerable economic harm, which we're only just seeing the tip of the iceberg for. It's going to get much worse in coming years. Yet, as I traveled across the Southwest um, and talked to people from different walks of life and saw some things, I couldn't help but notice a few things over that week or so um, that I wanted to share and just share a couple reflections on some of those things uh, with you all. So the first is that um, there were actually no visible water restrictions in a single place that we stayed. Maybe there was something in place, but there was no signage, nothing obvious in any of the places that we stayed. This is in national parks, for example, um, that had flush toilets um, instead of a vault or a composting toilet, and water pumps that people use freely and somewhat carelessly. Um, to do dishes and things like that with no restrictions or signage posted about the drought conditions. This included a pretty modern Airbnb. That was really great, but which must have had some sort of really tiny water heater that literally took four and a half minutes of running water to just get to a temperature that I could step in the shower for. And a hotel that had no visible water restrictions and no signage about water and had a bunch of fountains, hopefully which were using recycled water. The other things that I noticed and I had read a little bit about was the misters that were in use, especially throughout Arizona in the Phoenix area, like on outdoor areas, patios where they missed cool water um, into the air. Now, this may be less energy intensive than air conditioning, um, especially air conditioning in outside area, but they still do use water. Um, And I'm not sure if you can use all types of recycled water when you're misting it into the air like that. Now, some of these were entire decks and patios that had misters on 
um, or entryways to stores that were air conditioned, but the outside entry to the store before the sliding doors had misters on. And this included one place that sort of unbelievably actually had like a 20 or 30 foot long outdoor dining table with a propane fire grill in the middle that was on and then misters on in the other area and nobody was sitting at the table. And I can't really understand that. Um, and there was also a lot of new construction, especially even in places like in the desert, um, in places where people are not only building impervious surface that doesn't just reflect heat back up and create higher temperatures in urban areas versus non-urban areas, but which also interrupt water flow and create more drought-like conditions that can ultimately make areas more susceptible to wildfires by drying them out more. Now, some of this was commercial development and larger scale. Some of this was residential. And the residential, this is something that bugs me uh, about development in the Northeast too. When people are building in natural areas and the houses don't appear to have any sustainable elements, no solar panels, no water recycling systems, lots of asphalt, no trees, a big lawn that requires gardening. So you wanna live in this kind of beautiful area, this natural environment, but not building in ways that help ensure that that environment can actually stay alive. I should also mention that there were, in everywhere I visit in the Southwest, fire restrictions in place, which most people did seem to be following, um, though there were wildfires nearby. Um, in, in, for example, in the Grand Canyon, we were on the North Rim at Marble, look, overlooking Marble Canyon, we could actually see wildfires out in the distance at night burning, which was pretty crazy. Now, this is not an exhaustive or even an objective catalog of all of the things of what's happening or not happening related to these issues. Not an in-depth episode. Really, this is just a few reflections on some of the things that I happened to notice while traveling over the course of that week. Um, and what they felt like, which ties into two much broader themes, um, I'll share with you right now. So the first is that, what, is that we are doing things, especially in regards to uh, redevelopment and building, in ways that are not only inconsistent often with the needs of the community that we're building in, but also the needs of the natural environment as well. Um, it's part of this ideology that we can do whatever we want, whenever and wherever we want to, um, and that's probably not going to work in the long run. The second is that we congratulate ourselves for really tiny, sometimes even worthless, small steps. And I don't mean to suggest that small steps aren't often good. They often are. But the problem is that when the amount of the validation you get is hugely disproportional to the impact that you have, and then that reduces your motivation or capacity or capital for bigger solutions, that's really a problem. And I'm looking at you policymakers that think it's the least bit sensible to require people in a restaurant to have to ask for a 12 ounce glass of water because of drought conditions when we're wasting thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons a day in industrial and commercial and other areas that have very few restrictions or no constraints at all. And so we're, we're actually going to focus a little bit more on theme number one um, in this episode. Now, in, Jer in New Jersey, we actually do this too. We build without real consideration for the impacts of such building on the environment. But the problems aren't really droughts and wildfires. For example, they include things like stormwater runoff, traffic, and local pollution. In many places in New Jersey, such as a lot of Hudson and Bergen counties, almost every time there's a serious rain, entire neighborhoods and streets flood. Highways close, police have to direct traffic around manhole covers that have blown off because of an overcharged stormwater system underneath. Even though there have been efforts in some places to improve this, like in Hoboken, which had really bad problems and now only has 
pretty bad problems. The problem is that the issues are systemic and regional, and on that level, I don't think we're making a lot of progress. And one of the things that New Jersey does particularly terribly is facilitate municipal governments collaborating with each other versus allowing and incentivizing everyone to sort of approach things separately. And this lack of a more coordinating, more coordination and planning and action among multiple stakeholders at a larger level is one of, I would argue, the largest continuing historical failures in the state. We'll come back to that in a little bit. So the bottom line is that we don't really know how to build correctly or rather in line with A, the needs of the people in a community and B, the needs of the natural environment in a given community. Now we can look back at our own history and understand how this has happened in various places, such as New York City, which has been pretty widely studied, where the ideologies of people like Robert Moses were implemented and sure, ended up creating some benefits, but also which created some serious downsides and basically shaped life in significant ways in those communities for many decades to come. The problem is that we didn't really learn from these experiences, and instead of being careful and balanced with how we develop, knowing that there are things beyond our present knowledge and things we might be unintentionally changing, and oftentimes when we didn't get as much information from communities as we should have, we still sort of think that we have the right to build whatever we want wherever we want to. And this is largely driven by population growth that's leveraged both by redevelopers in the private sector who don't care about impact to communities or the environment, um, which is certainly not all of them, but it is many of them. And also by politicians who are looking for a quick political or financial win for themselves or their campaigns, their political networks, their donors, their lobbyists, etc. Broadly speaking, we're operating under the framework that we can control, compartmentalize, and dominate the environment rather than find ways to live in balance with it. But the truth is that regardless of how you feel about that ideology, whether it's right or wrong, we are really primitive in our technology still, infinitesimally primitive in the grand scheme of the billions of years this planet has been here, the hundreds of thousands of years perhaps our species has been here, and the tens of thousands of years that our societies sort of as we know them um, have been here. If we had infinite renewable energy and could recycle food waste and water to create a totally self-contained ecosystem, we could talk about the pros and cons of building in places that are highly inhospitable or challenging um, to uh, continued human development and growth. But don't shoot the messenger. We are just not there. We don't have that technology yet, and we don't incorporate the known values and knowledge about these things into most building and development practice, usually erring on the side of building whatever is the cheapest. And this doesn't mean we have to stop all building and development, not at all. It just means that we have to do it in ways that are more careful and more consistent with whatever the real dynamics are in any given place, whether it's the needs of the people who live here or the needs of the environment there. And I can assure you as someone who has worked inside of government and worked on a number of development projects in different communities, planning and implementing them and working with people on projects in other communities, that these questions, what are the real needs of the community and what are the real needs and our impact on the environment, they're not really part of the equation most of the time. And when they are, it's usually just a legal requirement checkbox, not for the stakeholders' genuine interest in actually doing better. So how bad is this problem really? Maybe I'm just making a big deal out of nothing here and I'm just mad because I don't have air conditioning in my truck and drove through a couple really hot days. 
And it's important to note that the heat waves across the West and some other parts of the U.S. right now are record setting. There are a number of cities that have set record high temperatures and many of which have set records for successive number of high temperature days in a row. I'll include some links with some more information in the description about this. But for example, Phoenix hit 118 degrees, Las Vegas 115 degrees, Palm Springs, California 123 degrees. These aren't outliers or normal or just another summer, but rather most meteorological and climate experts attribute these high temperatures to a trend in warming, especially in cities such as Las Vegas that are continuing to see expansive new construction and population growth, laying down more asphalt and more concrete that just create more heat islands. This can create temperatures in urban areas that are five or 10 degrees hotter than the surrounding non-urban areas. Now pack those streets with cars that are idling in traffic, cut down a bunch of trees and it only gets worse. These extreme temperatures make it harder for a bunch of types of animals to live, especially people, and especially certain types of people, such as people in lower income brackets, people who may have medical conditions, or older individuals who tend to often retire or spend later years in areas that are already warmer. That's only going to get even more challenging over time. It can easily be 140 degrees inside of a car on a hot, sunny day. It can be well higher than the outdoor temperature inside of buildings or homes without air condition or which aren't properly designed to use passive cooling methods. Imagine senior citizens, imagine low-income individuals living in these conditions. Imagine being homeless in these conditions. Really, try and imagine it. What if you don't own a car and you have to walk to work? What if you can't afford to replace the air conditioning in your car? What if you can only ride a bike on a hot asphalt bike lane with no shade? These high temperatures aren't just causing dangers from heat exhaustion and heat stroke and dehydration, but they're also creating conditions that are making it unhealthier to breathe. And then what will happen when we run out of peak demand energy, which was just narrowly avoided, it looks like, in New York City very recently by an emergency text message blast to residents to turn off appliances. But will every home, school, prison, office building have to have generators to provide air conditioning on hot days so that when we overuse the power demand on the grid, we're not going to boil alive inside of these places that are not designed to passively cool? What is the end game here? And hot air and heat waves aren't just problems in and of themselves, um, but they're related to wildfires as well. And these are only increasing. The following is from the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Wildfires are not a new phenomenon, but in many regions of the United States, particularly the Western states, they've become larger, longer lasting, more frequent, and more destructive in terms of live loss and economic costs. In 2017 in California, 9,000 wildfires burned more than 1 million acres of land. That same year, fire seasons in Washington and Oregon extended nearly three weeks longer than ever recorded before. In August of 2018, less than a year after the Thomas Fire grew to became the largest fire in California's history, the Mendocino Complex Fire broke that record. And then in November of last year, of that year, the Camp Fire became the deadliest and most destructive California fire on record. And while 2019 saw a slight drop in U.S. wildfire acreage, 2020 has already broken records, with more than 2.2 million acres burned in California alone. 
more than the annual total for that state in any previous year on record. Recent research has helped clarify the confluence of factors that is driving these destructive trends, including climate change, increased settlement along the wildland-urban interface, the spread of invasive species, and an antiquated zero-tolerance fire management paradigm that reigned for nearly a century and is only now being replaced by more evidence-based strategies. Although the mechanics of how wildfires start and spread are well-established, it's crucial to understand how a changing climate will influence these mechanics, how important fire is to the health of many ecosystems, and how we can learn to coexist with fire in the future. Okay, and I'll include the link to that in the notes as well. Now, over the last weeks, there's been several points in Southern California and Arizona where the smoke from the wildfire fires was clearly visible, creating a really weird haze in the sky. The air was thick, and you could feel yourself inhaling particulate matter in the ambient air. Valleys are worse. Heat waves are worse. Now, camping, I mentioned camping in the Grand Canyon, we saw some of the wildfires burning in the distance. And actually, the day that we were leaving to come up to Utah, um, they were starting to kick people out of a lot of the national forests because of the spread of wildfire, wildfires. Now, if you haven't really seen or fully comprehend the destructive nature of wildfires, go on YouTube, check out some videos, it will blow your mind. And obviously, although certain ecosystems need fire, the frequency is well beyond what works naturally for them. When I was camping in Montana, um, in Custer Gallatin National Forest, um, I was in an area where there happened to be a bunch of summer homes um, on a lake, East Rosebud Lake. Um, I bumped into some of the residents there and we were talking about it. It had looked like that a wildfire came through that valley many years prior. And so I asked one of the uh, residents about it um, and it did indeed uh, 25 years previously about had burned through the valley. Um, and the forest fire, fire, firefighters um, at the time, apparently, were sort of uh, mind-blown about how big the fire was and that even in this ecosystem, the fire is really important, but the frequency of the fires were really concerning to them and the scale of the fires. Um, and that job of battling those blazes um, is something, is one of the risky, I mean, it is incredible. Watch those videos of wildfires and you'll see. Um, so this is all incredibly destructive, not just to the environment, not just economically, but to our health and lives. More and more people are living in areas that have frequent air quality advisories. And like really try to think about that. We're living and we just accept living in a world where sometimes in some places, and this is increasing, you can't go outside because the air quality is so bad. And most of that being exacerbated by uh, human activity. It's really fucking dystopian when you think about it. Um, if you turned on a sci-fi movie, you know, and people were walking around with hazy orange streets that you could barely see through with ventilators on because of smoke from the environment burning all around them, you'd be like, wow, that doesn't look really good. I can't imagine that world. But that is the world. That's what's happening now in certain parts of the United States and other parts of the world as well. And if you think wearing masks for COVID was frustrating, imagine wearing airtight masks to protect you from getting sick from just breathing air saturated with smoke every single summer. How about masks in the summer due to smoke and masks in the winter due to disease? This does not sound like a good direction we're heading in. There's a lot of history with how wildfires were mentioned that in short was improper, and the quote I read earlier hinted at that. 
worth reading more about it if you're interested. But wildfires are being made more frequently and of worse quality by some of these droughts, in part by some of these droughts that we are helping create by diverting water in the natural environment towards agriculture and commercial and residential uses, rather than allowing it to store and percolate and migrate through the environment as it naturally would. Um, and so this now leads us to the next sort of topic in here, water. Or if you're not from New Jersey, water. That always sounds weird. Now, water is crucial. If you don't already know this, fresh water will almost certainly become more valuable than oil in the coming years. There are major legal battles already unfolding in the West, especially about who has the rights to what water source. Um, I think Utah is actually going through one of the bigger ones right now. It's going to turn communities and states against each other even more so, which is, of course, exactly what we need right now in this country. And let's remember that water isn't just for drinking and washing. It's used to grow the food that we eat. Now, whether you're a vegan or you're eating beef, a lot of water is used either way, though considerably more for beef. Did you know that it takes more than 1,500 gallons of water to produce one pound of beef? That quarter pounder, that's almost 400 gallons of water. And I've seen estimates that put this number actually much higher at closer to 1,800 or 2,000 gallons of water for one freaking pound of beef. 2,000 gallons, one pound of beef. I love a hamburger as much as the next person, but that is a lot of water. And hey, if you're vegan and you like almonds, it takes about one gallon of water per almond, per almond. Who eats just one almond? You can find a little more information in the description with links to these sorts of things. But yeah, the bottom line here is that agriculture uses a lot of water and that often uh, the growing isn't happening where the water is. So we have to move the water to those places and then there's loss in those systems over those distances too. Water is also used in producing all sorts of products we use on a regular basis. Textiles and clothes use a lot of water. Every new car produced uses something like 40,000 gallons of water in the process. Oh, and that two liter bottle of soda that probably has a whole bunch of terrible shit in it anyway. Yeah, that takes something like 200 gallons of water to produce that one two liter bottle. And I believe that's in large part to grow the corn that gets processed into the corn syrup. That's the sugar. But so, yeah, we use a lot of water, whether in meat or dairy or clothes or cars, a whole bunch of other things, or people being better about their water habits, dishwashing habits, bathroom habits, things like that. But the problem is that our population is growing, not as much as other some parts of the world that need even more, but still growing pretty significantly. And we have a very, very finite supply of fresh drinking water. Did you know that something like approximately 99% of the water on this planet is unusable for human use. Yeah, there's a lot less fresh water than it seems like. And the water we do have is getting contaminated with all sorts of terrible shit. You can listen to episode 11 where Steve Schnall and I talk a little bit about our multi-year legal battle with the East Orange Water Commission when I was mayor in South Orange about our own sort of local fight on this. But that is happening across the country. Now, in the West, the water problems appear as droughts. In the East, we almost, or like in New Jersey, we almost have the opposite problem sometimes. Now, New Jersey is actually in a decent place. This is one of the few areas where New Jersey actually did some long-term planning here. Um, and thanks to some of that forward-thinking policy that protects a lot of water sources um, in New Jersey, 
there's actually not a, uh, the amount of drinking water that we have access to in the state is actually not bad compared to a lot of other places. Not perfectly done, potentially not, a, not enough for the future, but we're ahead of the curve, it seems like, compared to a lot of other states, especially one so small and so dense. But our building in New Jersey, as I alluded to earlier, sort of causes the opposite problem with water, which is that we almost have too much. So when I was a town administrator in Bergen County, New Jersey, which is outside of the New York City area, um, the town next to us, to the east of us, which was at higher elevation, was building an apartment building on basically the on-ramp to a highway. I forget the exact size of the lot. It was extremely small, a sort of surprise that you could fit um, an apartment building there, but they were doing so, and it was uh, sort of on top of a hill. Now, that building was going to be uh, discharging sewage into a system that ran through our town. The system was all connected, um, and the uh, <laughs> you made a lot of jokes about shit flowing downhill at the time, but basically that building was allowed to move forward without any permits or approvals from us who are the operators of the stormwater and sewage system below elevation from where that development was, ha was happening. It just happened to be in a different town. And there's supposed to be some regional entities that sort of look at that, but the relationships between the people on the development project and who run um, that the agencies responsible for looking at these things when I brought the issues up to some of the stakeholders in the town I worked in, they basically told me to drop it because the people that were partnered on these projects were major political players in the county, and it didn't really matter if the project didn't make any sense. It was going to move forward anyway because they occupied all the appropriate seats needed to sort of move the approvals forward to get that built. Um, so that's a whole other layer to these problems. Um, and I think that these problems are really big, and they fall along these two main themes. Right, The first is that we need to be a, that we are um, building out of balance with our communities, with their needs and with nature and its needs. Now I'll be talking about more about what I mean by building um, out of balance with community needs in an upcoming episode about local governance and engagement and about ensuring that what the government's doing is aligned with real community needs. But even though we actually do have a lot of paperwork and a pretty bureaucratic set of rules about doing development and doing building, sometimes overly burdensome, especially in some environmentally sensitive areas, we still have some giant loopholes and they're often, they're, we're not working at, together at a regional enough level to really make a big difference there on a systemic level. So it's just really weird because on one hand, it seems like we have all these mechanisms in place because the process is really complicated. But on the other hand, we're still missing all of these areas and maybe some of those mechanisms don't have to be quite as um, bureaucratic as they are right now. Um, the second theme is that we allow ourselves to get distracted by very small potatoes. Um, and not just about this, but all sorts of things, right? In building a community development, we might do something like install a bike rack, create a small vertical garden, or have a few bioswales outside of the building. Now, are those things bad? Definitely not bad. But are they enough? Not even close. And again, if the validation that one receives, the applause an elected official gets, the certifications the building receives, things like that, if the validation that you receive is disproportionate from the impact that the thing has, it will likely reduce your incentive or capital or capacity to make other changes. So the whole net 
result can actually be a net loss sometimes, even if the solutions themselves are actually good small steps. Now we do this in areas across the policy spectrum, and I'll be coming back to this more in future episodes as it's one of the risks of incrementalism. Okay, so what do we do? Well, again, this is, the episode is not meant to be an in-depth guide or an overview or a deep dive into these issues. Just a few reflections on me as I'm traveling and sort of thinking about these things, wanting to share some of these thoughts with you all. So while I sit here and think about some of these things, a few ideas do come to mind that I want to mention. The first is for us to be more comprehensive with the metrics we use to measure the success. We talk a lot about this in the class that I teach in Seton Hall's uh, Master of Public Administration program. Using MPGs to understand the environmental impact of cars is not enough. There are, only not only, there are not only a bunch of other emissions that we should be looking at, what else comes out of the tailpipe, but we should be looking at production processes and supply chains. We should be looking at durability and repairability. We should be looking at mechanical waste generated, whether by oil changes or by old batteries becoming unusable anymore. Right? We need to expand the metrics that we use. We get so easily obsessed with these really singular metrics that don't actually do a great job measuring things. They're just the most convenient and easy thing to measure something. Now here's an easy one. This is one I've thought about for a long time having spent a lot of times in campgrounds. Um, natural places like campgrounds, even the national parks that have like the more set up facilities versus like here where you're in a national forest and there are no amenities or facilities at all, but these places that have facilities, they should probably not be using flush toilets. <laughs> It's hard for me to think that it's not insane to have flush toilet plumbing out in the middle of nowhere. Sorry. Each bathroom trip could cost between three and five gallons of water between the flush and the hand washing. Now let's take one park with 120 campsites, say, and maybe 200 people who are staying there at any given time, using the bathroom twice a day. That's easily over 1,200 gallons per day, per campground. And there are dozens, if not hundreds of campgrounds like that, even just in the drought-stricken areas in the Southwest. Converting these flush toilets to composting toilets would not only save all that water, but that can actually be used to grow food locally, fertilize soil, reduce cost and environmental impact elsewhere in supply chains, and help save people money. I've always been a proponent of camping areas sort of requiring or maybe incentivizing people to learn how to live better in balance with the environment they're going to visit. This could be a start to that of campgrounds providing more experiential education about our impact on the environment, getting people to be better about using um, about how they use water to wash dishes, getting people to be better about using composting toilets and things like that, having recycled rainwater systems, having solar power instead of being connected to the power grid. There's all sorts of things that I think can be done in natural areas that can help educate people and make help them make better decisions when they kind of go back to their own lives. And that leads me to the next one, which is number three, people need better information about their choices. This is, I'm not going to open the can of worms that I have in my ideology about government, which is that I think that largely it should be a platform to help get people information so they can then make their own better decisions. But this is a good example of that. In many cases, many people, and certainly not all, but many people <clears throat> will make better choices if they just had better information. Maybe restaurants and other stores could show the water required to produce different items. 
um, and try to offer some items that require less water to produce. Maybe there can be some incentives provided um, in the restaurant that still give people the choice, but give them some better choices and more information about the choices they're making. Thinking you're sitting in a restaurant, thinking you're doing the right thing by not having a 12 ounce glass of water, but then ordering a double hamburger that used a thousand gallons of water to help get to your plate, doesn't make any sense. But some of those people are well-intentioned. They wanna make better decisions. They just don't have all the information. So why don't we give them more information and let them make better decisions? Number four is we have to design community development processes better. Not just finding ways to ensure that building meets community needs better, which I'm gonna come back to um, in likely the next episode, but also the needs of the environment. Could we at least try to have some more open community conversations for example, about whether building in the desert, which will take water from the environment, strain existing resources, and potentially lead to a, an increase in the likelihood of droughts and wildfires, is that something that people who already live there maybe should get the chance to weigh in on and talk about? I think so. Um, and I think that we could have better conversations um, about all of these things and that the people who live in these places... Um, should be able to participate in that in a more open fashion. And we should all be able to have a more honest conversation about it in a more open fashion. Next, was we should be forcing governments to do better here. Um, they need to be more thoughtful and more collaborative about planning and zoning across municipal and county and state borders. That has to be facilitated by a higher level of government, most likely, or maybe by a nonprofit that will actually ensure regional needs are being met. But right now we have competition between states fighting over water, like in the Colorado River, and we have competition like in New Jersey for tax dollars, where each town is incentivized to try and do as much development as possible within their town, regardless of how that might impact another town. And this is an area that, for example, I mentioned before, New Jersey is really terrible at, but there has to be a way to allow for local decision-making that actually takes into better account of local issues, but doing that with a more regional context so that we understand how the decisions are impacting others. And if we don't do that, we're just going to keep going down. We're just going to keep perpetuating the cycle that is causing more of these problems and causing greater expense for everybody down the road. And my generation and younger generations are going to be inheriting the costs of having to fix all of that short-term work that's happening now. And that, on top of student loans and on top of let's not open that can of worms, is not really a really exciting or enthralling prospect. Okay, next, planting more trees. Not only do trees look nice and they provide homes for various animals, not only do they help improve the soil quality and usually re help reduce erosion, not only do they devour the carbon that we're pouring into the atmosphere, not only do they lower er temperatures in urban areas by keeping sun off the ground, but they actually help save water. Yes, in the first couple of years that a tree is planted, sometimes they can use more water. But after that point, um, based on the shade they provide and other factors, trees actually save water. It just takes a couple of years, and I'll include some links to that. Most towns, at least in New Jersey, have a shade tree commission, but they're often not treated with respect. They're not given the tools and the resources or the budget um, or any support to actually be proactive and strategic rather than just reacting to tree complaints, actually creating a strategic plan for increasing the tree canopy in a given area and helping address some of these problems. Now, there are definitely lots of smaller policies in the works in different places here. And again, we've made some progress in some areas. For example, getting LEED certifications more widely used. That's good. But 
It's really just trimming around the edges if we don't address the bigger issues in a more comprehensive fashion. It doesn't matter if a building has incandescent or LED lights if the building is being built in a place that is depleting natural water sources, which will not only contribute to greater droughts and wildfires and higher temperatures, but can cause water shortages in hydroelectric dams that will lead to more blackouts. This is happening right now in the Southwest and in Southern California. And I had a little, a long conversation with the owner of a fly fishing shop and guide shop on the Colorado River about this, who is seeing these changes take place around her, seeing the impacts to their business, seeing the water levels go down, and not only being worried about being able to turn on the faucet and get water, not only being worried about the continuation of their business and a lot of other businesses in the area that are reliant on water, but knowing that, that on these hydroelectric dams, they're actually in the process of moving turbines lower down on the dam to account for the lower level of water in the reservoirs. That's really scary. And I don't see those stores being offered, those places being offered incentives to build out solar panels on their property to reduce peak demand for energy. We're not really confronting these problems. And so the small pieces don't really make a big difference unless we are also looking at the bigger piece. And then in that case, they're great small steps towards a bigger solution. And the last piece is that the broader context is really important here, not just on this issues, but on so many other ones. And our sort of on to the next one attitude and belief that we can do whatever we want really hinders our ability to see the big picture. So maybe before we move forward with the next big project or next big idea, we can ask ourselves, who is this really for? There's a great, a great quote in Jurassic Park that the scientists were moving forward and uh, asking whether they could, not asking whether they should. I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well... I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And I think that's a really important lesson, one of many lessons from the movie Jurassic Park. Um, for us to take into all of these things is zoom out a little bit and ask ourselves these questions. Is this idea being done to meet a clearly identified community need that was gained from a participatory process? Or is it to build on that open land over there? Is it to fix long-standing issues with how a prior development impacted the environment? Um, or is it to allow a developer that a politician is friendly with to make a bunch more money? The same building or idea can be good or bad sometimes, depending on the context. And I hope that this episode has given you a few things to think about when you next have to come to a decision or conclusion or opinion about whether you're in favor of something like this or not. What's the broader context? What are the broader needs? Are we doing this for the right reasons? Or are we being arrogant or are we being humble with our place on this planet and in the universe? So let me know your reaction to this episode, which again, just a reflection on a few thoughts, not a detailed or in-depth look at this issue. Let me know if you want a further expansion on some of these things or if you've had enough. 
And either way, I hope you all stay cool this summer, but just maybe consider doing so under the pleasant shade of a nice evergreen tree rather than cranking up the AC in your new building while you vote for politicians who are watering their personal almond crops and hosing down their pastured cows with artisanal spring ice water. So until next time, thank you for joining me on Rethinking and let me know what you think about the episode. Hey everyone, Alex here. If you want to find show notes, sources, and more information, you can do so in the YouTube description or online on my website at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me with any questions or feedback at alex at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com or on social media. And if you liked what you heard, please consider leaving a positive review, subscribing, liking, or sharing this episode with a friend. Thanks again for listening.